continuing our study through the book of Genesis. We'll be in Genesis chapter 32 tonight. We will get through all 32 verses. Um, Before we get into it, if you would please pray with me. Lord, we thank you for this time, God, to to worship and prepare our hearts to dive into your word. Lord, we pray that you would speak to us, God, that you would enlighten the eyes of our understanding, that you would bring these words to life in our lives, and we would be able to identify and relate uh, with this story, this account from so long ago, because we know that you have a message Uh, for each of us in this. So speak to us, Lord, in your name. Amen. Genesis chapter 32. Um, Now, if you recall, last week we discussed uh, confirmation for God's direction. If you remember, Jacob was still tending the flocks of Laban, but God had come to him specifically in a dream and had told him, hey, Jacob, it's time to go back home. And we discussed the different forms of confirmation that Jacob received. Now, Jacob hears from the Lord, literally hears him speak to him, literally speaks to him through a dream, speaks to him through his circumstances, gives him added confirmation through his wives. Remember, both wives were in agreement. Hey, you're to do what God calls you to do. So now Jacob is ultimately following God's direction. So it should get it should get easy now, right? Everything should be like smooth sailing. He's doing what God's called him to do. Everything's everything's good. Everything's comfortable because that's what happens when we follow God's direction, right? No. Jesus said narrow is the way and difficult is the path that leads to life and there are few who find it. We're going to see in this text that though Jacob is ultimately following God's direction, there are some obstacles along the way. And one of these obstacles comes in the form of a wrestling match that we'll see between Jacob and the Lord himself. But see, Jacob isn't only wrestling with the Lord, he's also wrestling with Esau. And he's also wrestling with probably his biggest foe himself. Which brings me to the title of this teaching, Wrestling with God and Man. Wrestling with God and Man. Now, before we get into the text, um, there's a pretty cool connection here. We had talked about mm, several weeks ago about how, how Jacob is a picture of the Son uh, of the Spirit, right? Um, we had Rebecca in her room, in her womb. You had, um, Jacob and Esau fighting against each other, struggling against each other. And we discussed how that was a picture of Rebecca being the bride of the promised son, the church, and that we all face that wrestling match between the flesh and the spirit, right? You remember when we were talking about some of these things and how Jacob is a picture of the spirit and Esau is a picture of the flesh while Laban is a picture of the world. And it's kind of interesting that Jacob just got done wrestling with Laban. He just got done wrestling with the world, if you will, as all of us do in our lifetime. Before we come to the Lord, we wrestle with the world. Ultimately, We turn to the Lord, and when we turn to the Lord, we still got problems, right? We still have other things that we battle with, other things that we struggle with, other things that we wrestle with. So ultimately, Jacob, wrestling with the world, now he's following God's direction, entering the promised land once again, only to wrestle with, yes, God himself, but also Esau, the flesh, when we enter the promised land, the promise of God. We still have the flesh to battle against. So let's look at how this account unfolds, picking it up in Genesis chapter 32, verse 1. So Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. When Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. And he called the name of that place Mehanim. 
Hopefully that's right. Probably not. Um, so we have to remember that God had previously promised Jacob that he'd be with him. And now he's giving him some comfort and reassurance that he absolutely is with him through the form of angels. He sent these angels to minister to him, to take care of him, to be there with him. And Jacob is able to actually see these angels. Now, these angels were probably with Jacob the whole time. But now, for some reason, he can see them. He can see that God is protecting him through the form of angels. Remember, God had said through in the very beginning when he first left home, Hey, I'm going to keep you. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to protect you. And we see that these angels are a form of protection and comfort for Jacob. Now, maybe they were there the whole time. Maybe they weren't, but for some reason he can see them now. Okay. And the angels of God met him. This is the God's camp. Now he likely, God likely opened Jacob's eyes to the fact that these angels were there to give him some comfort and reassurance and in entering into the promised land. Once again, we see a similar thing in second Kings. If you'd Flip there with Elisha, we see Second Kings chapter 6, verse 15. There's these Syrians coming after Elisha and his servant. It says in verse 15, And when the servant of the man of God arose early and went out, there was an army surrounding the city with horses and chariots. And his servant said to him, Alas, master, what shall we do? This is the Syrian army coming after them. So he answered, do not fear for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Servants like what? It's just us too. And there's this army and there's these chariots and they're coming against us. We have no chance. And Elijah says, hey, no, no, no. We have more on our side than they do. Look what happens in verse 17. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. Then the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. He's referring to angels. Okay, these angels were protecting Elisha and his servants. The servant couldn't see them at first, but he prayed that God would open his eyes to let him see what was always there. These angels that were protecting them. This is probably uh, what's happening here in the text in Genesis chapter 32, how he met these angels. They were probably there all along, but again, God opened his eyes to see these angels that were there. See, God can use angels to comfort us. He uses angels for all different kinds of things, but he can use them to comfort us. He can use them to reassure us, but God often will even use others to comfort us and reassure us. Sometimes we just need that little extra encouragement, that extra motivation, that extra reassurance that, hey, no, you're, you're, you're following the Lord. You're walking in God's will. God's with you. I, 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 I know it. I see it. What do I mean? So I love, I love to get encouragement from people in this church that, that come to me after messages or throughout the week and they say, Hey man, God's really doing a work here. God's doing something. There's, there's life here. There's like a, a revival, if you will. There's healing that's taken place and they'll, they'll communicate all these different things. And not that these people are angels, but God uses these people to bring me reassurance. He uses these people to bring me comfort. It's like, yeah, I believe I'm following God's direction. But when we get that added, like, Hey, yeah, man, I see it. I see God working here. I see what God's doing here. It gives us that extra motivation to continue on in the direction that God's given us. And that's what God's doing with these angels here. He's reassuring Jacob, hey, you're on the right track. Continue to move forward and enter into the promised land. Picking it up in Genesis chapter 32, verse 3. Then Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. And he commanded them saying, speak thus to my Lord Esau. Thus your servant Jacob says, I have dwelt with Laban and stayed there until now. 
I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, and male and female servants. And I have sent to tell my Lord that I may find favor in your sight. So we see God sends messengers to Jacob. And now Jacob's going to send messengers to Esau. And look at what he does. He calls them, hey, hey, my Lord, your servant. I have all these different things. I have donkeys. I have camels. I have servants. I have all this stuff. What is he doing? He's trying to butter up his brother, right? He's a little worried what Esau might do when he finds him. See, he's acting in submission, but he's also trying to tell Esau, hey, you don't have to worry about me trying to get over on you again, right? Because last time he uh, deceived him into getting the birthright. And that made Esau very upset. So he's saying, hey, I don't need anything from you, Esau. I'm in submission. You're my Lord. I'm your servant. I have all this stuff. I'm not trying to get over on you. I'm not trying to gain anything from you because he's scared. Now, this is somewhat understandable that he'd be scared, right? Because what was the last thing that Jacob heard Esau say he didn't directly hear him his mom told him what esau said and what was that your brother's going to try to kill you you need to leave the promised land because your brother is out to kill you so it would make sense that uh jacob is trying to suck up to his brother a little bit hey uh last i heard you were trying to kill me yeah that was 20 years ago but just in case i'm in complete submission everything that i have we'll see is yours i'll bless you yada 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 he's trying to manipulate him into not doing anything to him look what happens in the next verse verse six then the messengers returned to jacob saying we came to your brother esau he also is coming to meet you. And 400 men are with him. Great news. Super encouraging. He just sent these messengers to kind of like, hey, let's, let's soften him up a little bit. Let's butter him up a little bit. And the messengers, what likely happened here is on their way there, somehow, some way, Esau found out that Jacob was entering the promised land and he was already on his way to meet Jacob with what? 400 men, an army. Yeah, this is, this is really encouraging. Esau, why would you need 400 men if everything's good? Now, of course, Jacob immediately is probably thinking, oh my gosh, he's coming to kill me. Why does he need 400 people to come with him? I got these servants, I got sheep, I got donkeys, but I don't have 400 men to fight for me. Look what happens in verse 7. So Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. And he divided the people that were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two companies. And he said, if Esau comes to the one company and attacks and attacks it, then the other company, which is left, will escape, will escape. So Jacob, he's afraid, he's distressed. So he comes up with this plan. Now we have to remember back in Genesis chapter 28 verse 15, he says it a few different times, but God had promised Jacob that he was going to be with him. And he says, behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. He promised he'd bring him back. He promised he was going to be with him. He promised that he would keep him for I will not leave you until I have done what I have spoken to you. That's what God said. That's what God promised. So why is it that Jacob feels like he needs to take matters into his own hands? Why is it at the first sign of chaos, we forget what God said? As soon as we fall into a trial or we go through a hardship, it's so easy to forget what the Lord said, forget what he promised. He had promised protection, provision. He promised he would keep him. And now that's not what he's thinking about in this moment. He's immediately thinking about, oh my gosh, Esau is against me. Remember last chapter, he just protected him from Laban preventing Laban from doing anything to him. So he's giving into his circumstances. He's giving into his emotions and he's not remembering the word of God, which brings me to the first of five points. 
Remember the word in the midst of chaos. Remember the word in the midst of chaos. It's super easy to remember the word when it's right in front of us, to remember the word when we're in the church or maybe in a Bible study or we're doing our devotions or right after devotions, it's fresh on our mind and we can even recite and memorize scripture, but are we remembering it when it counts? Is it the first thing that comes to mind when we're in that chaotic situation, when we're going through our trial, when we're going through our tribulation? Is that the first thing that comes to mind? We see the perfect example in the person of Jesus Christ in Luke chapter 4 in the midst of a trial, I would say, specifically a temptation from Satan. We see that he had been fasting for 40 days and now at his weakest moment at the end of this fast the enemy satan himself he comes to jesus and he tempts him and each time that the enemy tempts jesus in verses 4 8 and 12 of luke chapter 4 he does what he recites the word of god in the midst of the chaos the first thing that comes to the son of god's mind is the word of god he remembered it when it counted But he didn't just remember it. He didn't just recite it. He submitted to it. See, it's not just remembering the word of God or reciting the word of God in those chaotic moments. It's submitting to the word of God. If we don't practice submitting to the word of God when it's hard, then we'll likely respond in our flesh like Jacob does in this story. And look what he does here. He divides the people into two companies. This is a great idea, very thought through. Jacob's a very intelligent man, but what is he doing? He's acting in his flesh, and ultimately he's not trusting God and what God had said. Then look what happens. Genesis chapter 32, verse 9. Then Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, the Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your family, and I will deal well with you. So Jacob, he is afraid, he makes a plan, but ultimately in the midst of the chaos, he does pray. Which brings me to the second point, probably familiar with this phrase, don't panic, but pray. Now, I say don't panic, but pray. Um, Jacob really did both. Okay, He panicked and he prayed. We see a better example of this idea, don't panic, but pray, when we're in the midst of that chaotic situation, to go immediately to prayer, to not be overwhelmed by our circumstances. Daniel gives us a great picture of this in Daniel chapter 2. If there was any time to be afraid, if there was any time to panic, I I would say that this would be the time. So what's happening here in Daniel chapter 2, we'll pick it up in verse 14, but uh, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream and he wanted the wise men to come not only and interpret the dream, tell them what the dream was first and then interpret the dream. They couldn't find any wise men in the land to interpret this dream or tell him first what the dream was. So Nebuchadnezzar starts having all the wise men killed. Now, David and his three friends, they're considered these wise men. So look what happens in verse 14. Then with counsel and wisdom, Daniel answered Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He answered and said to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree from the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the decision known to Daniel. So Daniel went in and asked the king to give him time that he might tell the king the interpretation. This guy, Arioch, is literally coming to kill Daniel and his friends. And look what Daniel does. Then Daniel went to his house and made the decision known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, that they might seek mercies from the God of heaven concerning this secret. Arioch's literally coming to kill them. And what do they do? Right off the bat, Daniel says, I know what I need to do. Let me petition to my God. Let me pray to my God. He doesn't freak out in the moment. He goes right to the Lord. Now, 
Jacob, he does well that he prays, but he panics first and then he prays. But as he prays, look at what he prays in verse 9. I'll read it again. O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, the Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your family, and I will deal well with you. Now he's remembering the word of God. And he's praying this prayer. He's literally praying the word of God. But remember, he panicked first. Now he's praying. Now he's remembering the word of God. But he's already made this decision in his flesh. We'll do this sometimes. We'll face a trial or a tribulation or a chaotic situation and we'll immediately respond in our flesh only later to regret it and say, oh, I forgot the word of God in that moment. I should have reacted in the spirit. I should have responded with the word of God. I made my own plan first and I went forward with my will before I considered God's will and God's word. That's what Jacob did here. He makes his plan and then... He goes back to the word. Don't react in the flesh, but respond from the word. Genesis chapter 32, verse 10. I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies and of all the truth which you have shown your servant. For I crossed over this Jordan with my staff and now I have become two companies. Look at the first thing that he says. I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies and of all the truth which you have shown your servant. See, trials, they drive us not only to prayer, but humility. Jacob's humbled in this moment. And look what else he does. He says, for I crossed over this Jordan with my staff and now I've become two companies. What is he saying? When he first exited the promised land, all he had was what? A staff. He left the promised land with just a staff and now coming back, crossing over, he's coming back with to companies so often we don't consider all the blessings from god until we're faced with potentially losing them all that's where he's at right now he's not that he wasn't grateful before but now he's considering wow i had nothing and now you bless me with all these things and i may lose them all because esau i'm afraid is going to come after me with his 400 men to kill me sometimes it, it takes just that being faced with losing everything before we're grateful with the little things that God's blessed us with or the many things that God's blessed us with, like in Jacob's case. In Genesis chapter 32, picking it up in verse 11, he says, Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, lest he come and attack me and the mother with the children. For you said, I will surely treat you well and make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. He's praying for deliverance. And again, he's literally praying the very words of God. He's speaking to God, almost reminding God of what he had said to him. It's a good thing. It's a biblical thing to pray scripture. In fact, Jesus did it every time. He spoke to God because everything he said was the word of God, right? Every time he prayed, he was praying the word of God. But in all sincerity, it is a good thing to pray the word of God. Now, the reason it's good is not that we have to remind God of what he said, that we have to petition God to move based on his word. Now, that will happen. God will move when we pray prayers based on his word, based on his will. It will move God, but so often Praying faith-filled prayers, reminding ourselves of the promises of God is what moves us. See, when we pray the promises of God like Jacob is praying, it's not so much to move God, but to recognize, wow, God, you're, you're in control of the situation. This is what your word says. You'll, you're going to fulfill your word because your word means everything to you. You're faithful to fulfill your word. So as I'm praying these things, I'm not reminding God of what he said to me. I'm reminding me of what God said to me. 
If that makes sense. That's what Jacob is doing here. He's praying the very promise that God had promised him in previous chapters. Genesis chapter 32, verse 13. So he lodged there that same night and took what came to his hand as a present for Esau's brother. 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milk camels with their colts, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 foals. Then he delivered them to the hand of his servants. Every drove by itself and said to his servants, pass over before me and put some distance between successive droves. And he commanded the first one saying, when Esau, my brother meets you and asks you saying, to whom do you belong and where are you going? Whose are these in front of you? Then you shall say, they are your servant, Jacob's. It is a present sent to my Lord Esau. And behold, he also is behind us. So he commanded the second, the third, and all who followed the drove saying, in this manner, you shall speak to Esau when you find him. And also, behold, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he said, I will appease him with the present that goes before me. And afterward, I will see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present went on before him, but he himself lodged that night in the camp. See, despite the prayer that he just prayed, this prayer of deliverance, this prayer of reminding himself of what God had promised him, he's still going through with his plan. He's not fully trusting God and his promises. And ultimately, he's still practicing deceit. He's trying to manipulate. He's trying to get over on Esau. I understand he doesn't want to die, but he's still practicing this character flaw of deception. See, Jacob is going to send all these different things that he has, camels, goats, donkeys, the whole deal to Esau. What is he doing? He's willing to to surrender everything he has to Esau to save his life. But what he has yet to surrender is his life to God. And God is going to make sure that he ultimately surrenders his life to him in this passage. In Genesis chapter 32, verse 23, 22, sorry. And he arose that night and took his two wives, his two female servants and his 11 sons and crossed over the ford of Jabbok. He took them, sent them over from the brook and sent over what he had. So this word Jabbok, it actually means wrestler, a little foreshadowing of what's going to happen in the next couple verses. But look what's happening here. It's in the middle of the night or sometime in the night and he decides to move his wives. He can't sleep in this moment. Why can't he sleep? He's still afraid. He's still stressed out. He's still freaking out, if you will. He was praying, but peace is still lacking. Wait a minute. I thought that in the word it says that when we pray to God that that he'll give us he'll give us peace. That's what Philippians 4 6 says in other words, right? Be anxious for nothing but at everything by prayer and supplication. Make your request to God and God ultimately he'll give you peace. But Jacob's praying and there is no peace. He's sleepless. He's concerned he's still afraid so why doesn't he have peace i think so much of it has to do with the faith in his prayer which brings me to the third point have faith in the one you're praying to have faith in the one that you're praying to if we're not trusting the prince of peace to give us peace then we can't really expect to gain peace we can pray to God, but we have to pray prayers of faith. We have to pray in a, a manner that, hey, I actually trust God. I have faith in God that he's going to do this. Not that we believe any, anything that I ever pray, God's going to answer that prayer. But we have faith in his character and who he is. Remember what he just prayed. He reminded himself of what God promised. And part of that promise was that he was going to keep him, that he was going to protect him. But right after he prays that, it's like he doesn't really believe it. He can't 
sleep. He doesn't have peace in this moment. See, Jacob is basically freaking out because though he prayed and he may have even been praying all night, he's still focused on what? He's focused on his circumstances. He's focused on Esau and these 400 men that are potentially coming after him. And that's the problem. We can pray, but if we're not focused on the Lord and we're distracted by our circumstances, then we can't expect to have peace. We have to focus on the Lord. That focus has to be greater than the focus on our circumstances for us to experience that peace that surpasses all knowledge and all understanding. So he's praying it's good, but there's something lacking. And I believe what's lacking is the faith in the Lord through his prayers. Look what happens. Genesis chapter 32, verse 24. Then Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. Verse 25. Now when he saw that he did not prevail against him, he touched the socket of his hip and the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. Okay, this is a theophany or a Christophany. Okay, this is an appearance of Christ in the Old Testament. We've talked about this before. Often Christ is referred to as the angel of the Lord. And we see this term, the angel of the Lord, right afterwards. Often we see uh, Abraham was speaking to God. Abraham was speaking to the angel of the Lord. We see that God and the angel of the Lord is synonymous. The same thing is happening with this man. This man is, in fact, Jesus. Now, wait a minute. I thought the Bible said no one has seen God at any time. It says that several times, right? So how is, and he actually names this place in that context of seeing God. How is it that Jacob is face to face with God? Well, when the Bible says that no one has seen God at any time, we have to remember that we worship a triune God. That's a Three in one. He's one God, but three persons. You got the Father, you have the Son, and you have the Holy Spirit. No one has seen God the Father at any time because he is spirit, but people certainly have seen the Son. And it's not just during his ministry. We see people saw the angel of the Lord, this man, throughout the Old Testament. They saw Jesus before his incarnation, during his incarnation, and after his resurrection. This is the God that people are able to see, the person of Jesus Christ. So Jacob is literally wrestling with God. He's literally wrestling with Jesus, which brings me to the fourth point. Wrestling with God is better than fighting against God. Okay? So, he might be wrestling with God, but at least he's with God. Okay? He's not fighting against God. He's wrestling with God. What do I mean? It's okay to wrestle with God about some things. But the difference between wrestling with God and fighting against God is when we fight against God or when people fight against God, that ultimately typically leads them to walking away from God. It's okay to wrestle with God with our issues, but make sure you're wrestling with him and not fighting against him. Don't do the push away thing. Do the pull in thing. I don't understand why this is happening. Give me understanding, God. I don't get this, but wrestle with him about that. That's better than, not ideal, but better than fighting against God. Do you ever wrestle with God? Do you ever wrestle with God? Wrestle with God like an actual wrestling match? Well, maybe not that. Maybe not what happened with Jacob, but we often do wrestle with God about so many different things. I've been wrestling with God, to be completely transparent and honest with you, uh, this week. So I woke up Monday morning, getting ready to go to the gym. By the grace of God, for some reason, I looked at this uh, this mail that I had, and I looked, and I was like, wait a minute jury duty. That was sometime in November, right? So I pulled out the thing and sure enough, it was that morning. I was just getting ready to go to the gym. I'm like, okay, got to be in San Bernardino at eight o'clock in the morning. So I'm like, 
All right, I'm driving down there. I get there and it's just like, okay, we're sitting in the room. First, we have to go through the whole security line, which takes about an hour. And then this other line to fill out paperwork. And then two hours later, I'm sitting there. There's no direction. We're just sitting there. I didn't bring anything with me. So I read something that you can't bring a cell phone in there. So I got a book. That's about it. And I'm like, man, God, I got all this stuff to do this week. I'm teaching at the Bible college. There's all this stuff that I'm praying about and trying to figure out for the church and mission trips and all. God, I don't have time for this right now. I don't have time for jury duty. This isn't going according to my plan. Okay, so I'm wrestling with God about this. God, why am I in jury duty right now? And I end up there till 4.30. Um, we find out that, okay, we're going to have to be there um, Tuesday from 1.30 to 4.30, Wednesday from 1.30 to 4.30, and then all day Thursday. Well, I already committed to teaching at the Bible college on Thursday. So now I got to tell him I can't. What does this mean? God, why, why, are you, why are you doing this? Why are you doing this to me? So I'm wrestling with them. And I accepted it early. You know, it took a few hours. But by the end of the day, I was like, all right, well, it is what it is. I can't do anything about it. I don't have time to study. Didn't have time to study for tonight. Didn't have time to study on Thursday. I don't know what's going to happen. Um, and I still don't know completely why the jury duty thing happened. I did get to meet a guy at a gas station and told him Jesus loved him, gave him some change. Maybe that was why. Um, Still not completely sure. I know the Lord is testing me somehow, some way. Well, yesterday at about four o'clock, I got released from jury duty. All of us did. So praise God. I can still teach there tomorrow. I was able to come here tonight. Everything's good. But I was wrestling with God about this thing. We wrestle with God about our circumstances sometimes, right? When they don't line up with our plan. It's like, man, God, this isn't what I planned today. Why is this thing happening? It's not like I didn't plan on doing good things. I was planning on doing things to glorify you and honor you. How is this going to honor you? God's like, hey, I got, I got a plan. I got a reason for it. I don't really know what it was. But sometimes we wrestle with God about our circumstances other times we wrestle with God over sin. See, sometimes he'll wrestle with us to produce a character in us. And I know that at the very least, God was trying to produce patience in me. Other times, God will wrestle with us to purge sin out of us. And we'll see in this text, that's why God is wrestling with Jacob. There's a specific character quality that he's trying to purge out of him, that deceit. But there's also character qualities that he's trying to produce in him, that humility, that ultimate surrender. And look what it says, that last part of verse 25. Sorry, first part of verse 25. Now when he saw that he did not prevail against him. This is God saying he, that he did not prevail against Jacob. What does that mean? Wait a minute. Isn't God stronger than Jacob? Absolutely. The only way we're going to win a wrestling match with God is if he lets us. Okay, and that's what he's doing. He let Jacob prevail against him in a way. But we'll get further clarity of this as the text goes on. In verse 26, and he said, let me go for the day breaks. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. At first glance, it seems to be that Jacob is getting over on God. I won't, he's prevailing against him. I, I, I won't let you go. I'm going to hold tight to you. But when we compare, compare spiritual things to spiritual things, when we compare scripture to scripture, we see that Hosea actually gives us further clarity of what happened in this specific wrestling match. If you'll flip to Hosea chapter 12, Hosea chapter 12, Hosea chapter 12, verse 3, it says, he took, speaking of Jacob, he took his brother by the heel in the womb, and in his strength he struggled with God. Yes, he struggled with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought favor from him. He found him in Bethel, and there he spoke to us. That is the Lord God of hosts. The Lord is his memorable name. So we see this angel, not only is it God, but we see that, yes, it says Jacob prevailed against him, but he sought favor from him while weeping. What are the implications there that Jacob was brought to a place of brokenness? 
he realized from who, who he was fighting and he's weeping and seeking favor from God. And the reason he won't let go is because he wants the blessing from him. Okay. So he is ultimately brought to a place of brokenness and surrender. See, earlier, Jacob had prayed for what? He had prayed for deliverance, right? He prayed for deliverance from who, though? He prayed for deliverance from Esau and these 400 men. See, God had an interesting way of answering Jacob's prayer right here. What do I mean? See, Jacob thought that he needed to be delivered from his enemy, Esau. But God knew ultimately that he needed to be delivered from himself. So he brings him to this place of brokenness and surrender to help him overcome not Esau, but himself. This is a great example of how, of how Jesus intercedes on our behalf when we ask God for things, when we pray certain things, the Lord intercedes and almost interprets, if you will, our prayers. And maybe we pray one thing, but God's like, what they really need is this specific thing. He thinks he needs to be delivered from Esau, but really what he needs is to be delivered from his self and his sinful, deceitful ways. And we'll see in this text, he does both. He's going to deliver him from himself and he's going to next chapter deliver him from Esau. Because again, Jacob's greatest enemy isn't Esau. Jacob's greatest enemy is himself. And God knows that. Genesis chapter 32, verse 27. So he said to him, what is your name? He said, Jacob, what is he doing here? Why is God, why would God ask Jacob what his name is? Doesn't God know his name? Yeah, God knows his name. He's asking him his name to bring him back to the place where he first started this lifestyle of deception. When was he asked his name in the beginning of this story of Jacob? Was it not with Isaac, his father, when Isaac had asked him, what's your name? And he said, Esau. That's where the deception started. He's bringing him back to the root of the problem. Hey, this is not just a character quality in you, this deception and manipulation that's present today. It's been present since way back when, and we need to get to the very beginning of when this character flaw took place so we can purge you of that so that you can begin to lead an honest lifestyle. See, Sometimes God will remind us of our past to prevent us from destroying our future. And that's what God's doing here. He's trying to bring him back to his past. And he says, he answers and says, yeah, my name is Jacob. He was honest. This is good. And now true change has taken place. So much so that God is going to give him a new name. In Genesis chapter 32, verse 28, and he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. Jacob didn't prevail in that he defeated God. He prevailed in that he surrendered to God. See, God had given him this new name, Israel. And so many times I've heard people take this name and, and, and take it really out of context and what it actually means. It, it means either prince with God or one who fights victoriously with God, not against. So often people, Israel is, the people are always fighting against God. No, this was a, okay, God comes alongside and we prevail. We're victorious with God, not fighting against God. Okay. So God, he gives Jacob this new name, Israel, but he will often still be referred to as his old name, Jacob, throughout the book of Genesis. Why? Because Jacob's the old man, Israel's the new man, and the old man has this tendency to resurrect itself. See, we see the similar thing with Simon Peter. Sometimes he's called Simon, the old man, the old name, and sometimes the new name God gave him, Peter, he'll call him that name, and sometimes he'll call him Simon Peter, and it's almost like this indication he's in the middle of his transformation. Yeah, sometimes Simon, you're Simon. 
You're prideful, Simon. You act like Simon. You act like no real change has happened in your life. Jacob, same deal. You act like Jacob. You act like the deceiver. You act like the manipulator. But I've given you a new name. God's given each of us new names, right? We're not identified with our the names that, uh, you know, that that are synonymous with our sinful past, whether it's addict or adulterer or, or murderer or angry, wrathful, vengeful, whatever that name is. He says, no, 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 that's not your name anymore. Your name is now this name. And I'm calling you to live by this name. But again, the old man likes to resurrect itself. He likes to come back. Those character qualities, sometimes they like to manifest themselves and come up again if we're not careful, if we're not watching. So Jacob, though his new name is Israel, he falls back into Jacob sometimes. Genesis chapter 32, verse 29. Then Jacob asked, saying, Tell me your name, I pray. And he said, Why is it that you ask about my name? And he blessed him there. I love this. He doesn't give him the name. Why? Because he had already told him his name. This is God speaking again. Uh, it's, it's funny that Jacob would even ask him his name. I really don't know why he's asking him his name. And God ultimately says, why are you asking my, you know my name. You know my, you know who I am. You know who you're wrestling with. And he just doesn't even answer his question. He just blesses him. Genesis chapter 32, verse 30. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel. For I've seen God face to face and my life is preserved. Just as he crossed over Penuel, the sun rose on him and he limped on his hip. Therefore, to this day, the children of Israel do not eat the muscle that shrank, which is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip and the muscle that shrank. See, Remember, he touched that socket of his hip and forever now Jacob is going to walk with a limp. The limp was a constant reminder of the lesson that he learned, which brings me to the fifth and final point. A limp is an indicator of a lesson learned. A limp is an indicator of a lesson learned. Practically, you could just insert the word weakness for yourself if you don't walk with a limp. Okay, so it's 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 a weakness. This was his weakness that God actually had given him. See, God wrestled Jacob to purge him of deceit and to teach him humility and surrender. This limp would remind him forever about the lessons that he learned through wrestling with God. See, sometimes God, he uses our weaknesses to remind us of the lessons that he wants to instill in us. He did this with Paul. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, just about wrapping it up. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, in verse 7. This is right after Paul's talking about this man. He's really speaking of himself that was caught up to heaven, literally, to paradise. And then he says in verse 7, Unless I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. See, Paul was receiving these revelations from God. He was actually taken to heaven and saw things that very few men have ever seen. And people are literally, if you remember, Acts worshiping him as God. So, if you're getting all this attention, he's healing people like Jesus was healing people. There's a likelihood that pride could set in, right? Man, operating in all these powerful gifts, evangelizing people are getting saved left and right, literally doing some of the miracles that Jesus did. So he has this thorn in his flesh. A thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. See, Paul understood why he had this thorn in his flesh. And many people say many different things about what this thorn in his flesh was. He speaks of infirmities in a couple verses. So some say it could have been an eye thing. It could have been a a, a limp type of thing. It could have been a, a spiritual thing. It could have been a pride thing. Whatever it was, God used this weakness to drive him to a place of dependence and surrender. And he says in verse 8, Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. 
And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast of my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasures in infirmities and in reproaches and needs and persecutions and distresses for Christ for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Many of us have a limp or a thorn in our flesh. There are weaknesses that we have that God may never take away. Maybe it's a physical thing. Maybe it's a spiritual thing. Maybe it's a a sin issue that you've asked God to take from you and it's like he just won't take it from you. It can really be anything, but sometimes God leaves you with that thing just so that you'll learn what Paul learned, that you would boast in your infirmities, that you'd boast in your weaknesses so that Christ's strength would be made perfect in you. In closing, what are you, if anything, what are you wrestling with God about? Is it your circumstances? Is it your job? Is it a family issue? Is it an issue with a friend? Is it a location thing? Is it a sin struggle? Because we all fall into these things where we're wrestling with God in certain periods of our life. Maybe it's a specific weakness like Paul that he won't take away. Whether he takes it away or not, whether he restores that relationship, regardless of what happens, we know this. He's using every single thing in our lives, even our weaknesses, to teach us what he taught Jacob, to drive us to his feet, to bring us to a place of ultimate surrender. I said earlier in a point that wrestling with God is better than fighting against God, but surrendering to God is better than wrestling with God. And that's what he's called each and every one of us to do so That's the heart, that's the message, that's what God ultimately was getting across to Jacob. Hey, you need to surrender this sin issue and you just ultimately need to surrender your life to me completely. Quit trying to do things your way. Quit trying to protect yourself. Surrender your will to me. I have a purpose, I have a plan. You may not always understand it, but you're never going to experience it unless you fully surrender. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. God, thank you for putting up with us when we wrestle with you about things, when we disagree with you about things as if we would ever be right and you be wrong. God, we know that you're always right even when we don't understand and we know that um, you'll wrestle with us sometimes um, not to stress us out, not even to necessarily wear us out, but because you love us and you want to grow us and change us and mold us to become more like you, God. I pray that we would uh, learn this lesson of surrender quickly and we would recognize that it's not just a, a one moment giving our lives to you. It's a daily decision to surrender to you, surrender our, our day to you, our lives to you, our families to you, our friends to you, every aspect of our lives to you, God. And I pray that we wouldn't be uh, hard-headed, but we would receive that from you, Lord, and we would choose to learn uh, the easier way. God, we love you. In your name, amen.